Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century. I'm Veda Sanasi. Welcome to In The Room, the podcast. My guest today is Ken Joroge, the co-founder and co-CEO of Cellulant, a one-stop payment platform in Africa, changing how customers pay and get paid, all from a single connected payment platform. Cellulant's mission is to build a world-class business led by entrepreneurial, value-driven people in Africa, for Africa, by Africa. Ken is a serial entrepreneur. In 1998, he co-founded Three Mice Interactive Media, which grew from a two-man team to a leading web development firm in East Africa. And in 2000, Three Mice was acquired by Africa Online, the largest Pan-African internet service provider at the time. When Ken started Cellulant in 2004, they first began by selling music via mobile devices, but then they pivoted. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Veda. Um, tell me, when and why did you pivot? Yeah, we, we pivoted uh, in, uh, I think, uh, 2007 it was. And uh, the reason was very simple. We, we basically looked at our business at the time, which was a, a consumer-facing uh, ringtone slash music business. And we didn't feel that it would uh, that business model would take us to mission. Uh, we always wanted to build a business at scale on the continent. Um, we just thought that uh, we needed to uh, basically sort of morph into uh, specific lines that uh, that had uh, the range that was required for us to grow. Mm-hmm. So, what what does Cellulon do now? Yeah. So actually, <clears throat> you could say that. So it's uh, the pivot is the right word uh, in two thousand and seven from music into what we became, uh, and then in the, so you could say that the music was phase one of our business. We went into a phase two, and in a phase two, we were primarily a mobile banking and mobile payment platform provider for banks across the region, and so that uh, formed quite a, a significant part of our core business. Um, uh, to, to today and a very strong foundation for our business today. And in the, in phase two, we also sort of, um, again, evolved into a couple of uh, business lines. So we had a, a software business uh, um, for payments, uh, powering banking and payments uh, for banks. And then uh, in 2011, we got into agriculture and uh, we built a payment platform uh, that was uh, used by the government of Nigeria to pay farmers. And, um, and today, as we get into phase three, we are basically getting to phase three with sort of these two platforms. Uh, one is called Ting and one, the other is called Agricom. So Ting is actually a single stop uh, payment platform across the region. So that's uh, present now in 18 countries across uh, East, Southern, North Africa, Central Africa and uh, West Africa. And then we have Agricor, which is um, what our is an agtech platform. Basically, what we have built over the couple of years uh, since we we built the payments platform for farmers in Nigeria is built an entire ecosystem that's uh, powered by a marketplace. So we have a trading platform that connects 
uh, factory process, food processors uh, running factories and uh, farmers in the rural area. And uh, it orchestrates all of the logistics and all of the different players to, to, to meet that demand. So it's a technology platform um, doing that. You said mobile banking. Um, isn't mobile banking kind of a congested space in, in, in Kenya? What's the competition like? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> look, there's nothing uh, special about mobile banking, I think, mm-hmm. if, if you think about it that way. Uh, but when we started, it was special. And, uh, and I think we did a fairly decent job in, uh, in executing. In that phase of execution, uh, I think we ended up uh, with about 120 banks. Uh, the continent has about five, 520, maybe 540 banks. I can't remember the number. Uh, but out of those, then maybe about 270 banks are really substantial. So you could say that, um, yes, it's congested space. We came in early. We did a lot of uh, things right. We made some stupid mistakes across the, you know, along the, the journey. Uh, but we've ended up with a substantial market share, and uh, we keep growing that uh, from time. So in the end, we, we'll end up being dominant in a fairly sort of boring space, but, but also very interesting. But what is good about that is that um, those, uh, that, those pipes that we've built into banks have become uh, essentially very powerful uh, platform for payments, right? Because if somebody's making payments, they're making payments by either from a bank account, or from a mobile money wallet, and we have the largest number of connections for this across the region. So it's it also set a foundation for a really really good payments business. You said you you said you made some <clears throat> stupid mistakes along the way. So I guess that makes you human and an entrepreneur. Do, do you mind sharing what are some of those stupid mistakes that you made along the way? Well, quite a number actually. Um, I think of um, some of the more notable ones. I think one of the more interesting ones was very early on in. Uh, in the mobile banking business, we had an opportunity to do um, a, a, a. We were pioneer, and we had what really the first people to connect banks into M-Pesa. But because we saw ourselves as a software company, uh, we ended up doing a software type deal, and yet today we power uh, close to five billion dollars of uh, transfers uh, between banks into M-Pesa uh, uh, per year. Um, had we structured that commercial model nicely, we would have uh, been earning maybe 0.6% of that as revenue. Uh, today we keep a very tiny fraction of it because it was a flat fee software type type deal. So so, th- so that's uh, really maybe one of the more painful commercial mistakes that, that we made. Of course, it was very early days. You couldn't, nobody could have foreseen how big MPS was going to become. Uh, I've also made uh, some mistakes uh, with people, uh, letting on bad people stay on for too long, um, which uh, turns out to be expensive and very difficult to correct. I mean, cost you all. It's for every senior job you hire and you allow that uh, wrong senior person to to stay, it almost sets you back almost three years, I find. Um, so very costly. So I've made a couple of those uh, along the journey. And then also I've uh, made a couple of uh, mistakes also not supporting very good people enough and, uh, and I've lost two or three really really good people uh, along the way and then uh, yeah, yeah I think in, in terms of um, you know basically strategic shifts in the business I think we took a little bit too long to shift into what now we call phase three um, maybe uh, two years later I would think 
Um, yeah, so I think these are some of the notable, notable mistakes that was done. Uh, Ken, I want to talk a little bit more about you, the person, and the entrepreneur. Um, I hear that you are a self-proclaimed mobile commerce evangelist. Is that correct? Did you coin that term? <laughs> self-proclaimed, I don't know, but yeah, I've called myself that for a long time. So what, uh, what is a mobile commerce evangelist? Yeah, I, I, well, it's a simple job, right? It's of, uh, yeah, just always preaching the gospel of digital, right? You know what digital can do for business, what it can do for banks, what it can do for, for the continent and for critical sectors in the business. Uh, I think uh, for as long as uh, cellulant has existed, we've always done this. Um, yeah, so that I think that's what I meant when mm-hmm. I coined this, this word. Uh, at what point in your life did you realize that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? And h- how did it come about? Yeah. Yeah, what, well, well, I mean, we were discussing that with Jerry a little bit earlier. Uh, and frankly speaking, I cannot remember. Um, all I know is that, uh, you know, when I was uh, growing up, um, so a lot of the foundational values uh, that I hold here were instilled in, in my childhood, right? that uh, very tough single mom as a parent. Um, so hard, values of hard work, uh, you know, staying sharp and, you know, always being aware and so on and so forth were just drills <laughs> very painfully when I was growing up. So they just became a way of life. Uh, but I was very curious as a kid, right? I mean, I'd pour myself into anything and look at encyclopedias and so on and so forth. And I, I, I remember myself just being a curious kid and then always wanted, wanting to be at the top of everything that I, that I like doing, you know. So I like math, I like sciences and so on. So I like to be at the top of my class. Uh, went into high school, I continued being curious and so on. And so I carried this curiosity and just hard work and ethic and so on. That was kind of always my mix. Uh, until I went into college. When I went into college, um, so, so I went to two colleges, right? I went to Strathmore College, now it's a university. And they had a, that's where I, I basically had my first um, a brush with computers and I loved it. But also the teaching style was very different. We had uh, just a couple of lecturers who would sort of bring magazines to class and we'd talk about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and so on and so forth. And that was a very interesting universe to be curious about. And so as I poured into this universe, it became very interesting that actually the guys that started businesses were just about my age. So it's like, hang on, why is that that those guys in that part of the world, I mean, this is not gold on the ground and stuff, it's really just your mind. So I get attra- I got attracted to this idea that actually you could build those types of businesses even in Africa, and um, and I think once I got onto that uh, sort of uh, train, it just uh, I almost was cast to like you were almost uh, sort of gravitated towards what I do today. There was actually no, there was almost no choice because you know the hard work, the resilience, the, the challenge, the interest in doing that uh, sort of almost led me to this and my competitive nature always uh, sort of I could say conspired to sort of lead me to sort of building a tech business in Africa wanting to be world class uh, solving some of the critical problems of the continent and then wanting to be at the top so we want to be the number one payments business so it just feels like it's a cocktail of things that I've always been for a very long time 
that just seem to get to come together for it's like a culmination of yeah, all those things the entire journey and then yeah. that class kind of just like clicked this is it this is what yeah. i'm meant to do yeah. um it's interesting you mentioned this um uh, tony wagner has a book called uh, creating innovators and he talks about uh, a common thread that he noticed in entrepreneurs and in innovators and he says that they all develop a very strong sense of passion a very strong sense of purpose and the third surprising p is that they are all exposed to play mm. and he says um they usually spend an overwhelming um, portion of their childhood playing. And, and one of our guests on the podcast, I believe, is a good friend of yours, um, James Moria, was sharing with us how when he was a kid, he spent a lot of time in his father's law firm from the very early age of nine and ten. And while it was not always play, he was kind of forced into that environment that kind of always constantly stimulated him in a way that, um, you know, it, it piqued that curiosity, right? Um, do you relate to that? Do you feel there were moments in your journey, in your childhood where... It felt like you were playing. Yeah, I played a lot. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I, I never went into a law firm or anything like that. But uh, but I just, I mean, there was a, you know, we lived in, a, in an environment where kids, there were kids from all environments and so on and so forth. And so we played, we played soccer in charge. I, it was, yeah, I was, it was a, a very warm childhood. We had no money. Uh, and my mom was uh, tougher. I always thought that she was tougher than she ought to have been. But, but yeah, it was very warm childhood. I played a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then it had its own share of challenge and so on. And so it was very active childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, when did you have your first stint um, as a successful entrepreneur? <clears throat> yeah, so the, the term success is uh, generally, I find it dubious in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a journey. Um, and, 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 and frankly speaking, if I think about my entrepreneurial journey, I mean, I've, I've been through two businesses, um, but also before then. So, so when I left college, I worked for about, uh, so I had two jobs in one and a half years. Both of them were with startup ISPs. So in a sense, I got exposed to startups early, right? They were some of the first ISPs in the region. Uh, and I hated how they run, ran them. Right? Like you could see that there was all this huge opportunity, but you could see governance problems, directors fighting and so on and so forth. That was always disturbing because you know there was so much potential when you looked at the internet and you saw the scale of businesses in the US and so on and so forth. Uh, so I ended up uh, starting my first company together with two other partners called Three It was a web development firm we built basically. It's what they, they call systems integrators today. So we pioneered that area. Uh, and, and, and a couple of things uh, there were, you could consider that we managed to build talent and a brand that was second to none at the time. We never made any money, right? I mean, like it was a financial struggle uh, for the five years that we were there until we sold the business. Um, but uh, when I came out of that um, uh, experience, I had learned a couple of things. So I had learned to start. Right, that uh, it doesn't really matter where you are, you just start, and at some point, the rest of the world catches on. Uh, I had learned how to build a brand. Uh, my co partner was a marketer, and so on and so forth. So, I, lo- I poured myself into a lot of brand building, marketing, marketing pitches, and so on and so forth. In a sense, it flavored a lot my style in how I communicate, how I think about marketing, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I learned how to build a brand and I learned how to build really, really exceptional teams with zero money, right? So by just selling the vision. 
Uh, so when I, I, I got on to Seriland, um, you couldn't say that it, it, it was relatively easy doing those two things. Right? We took care of business, we positioned it in the market, uh, I started to attract very high quality talent very early and learned how to spot it. Um, <clears throat> and then the loop that I wanted to fix was this thing called the business, you know, like this business, this engine that generates growth and cash and so on and so forth. And, and frankly speaking, <laughs> it's still a journey, right? So, of course, I mean, the business is um, not as small as it was at the beginning, so we've made significant progress. Uh, if I look at from a brand perspective, I think we've done reasonably well. So I, why is that so critical to you? Why does it matter to you that you are able to build a world-class business in Africa? <clears throat> why not just set a business that is successful and then why push that measure of success and that bar yeah. so high? Yeah, I, th I think, uh, you know, so if I look at myself and my co-founders, um, I think if you look at our personal circumstances, we grew out of um, fairly um, mundane beginnings, right? I mean, I got... Uh, I had problems paying school fees. My mice could see my mom struggle to make ends meet, and so on and so forth. And there was always poverty around us, right? So I don't think that you know. So if you grow under these kinds of circumstances, um, you at a personal level you basically fast grow with uh, a sense of uh, really succeeding outside of those circumstances. Uh, but also when you look at around, you know, as I became older and you started looking at the world around us, you just wonder, as you say, why is this wealthy continent and these good people, you know, always in trouble? Like, you know, like there's always problems around us. And I think as you begin to, as I began to settle into it, and Bolaj and I began to settle into it, we, 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 you kind of feel a sense that you, you really need to contribute. Um, it's just that then Africa has very big problems. And so therefore, you know, sort of building a small company that hires five people uh, just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and, I, and frankly, I always argue that, uh, you know, when I've ran around and when I've bumped into entrepreneurs out of 10 staff, they have the same problems I do. The zeros are different, but they're just as stressed as I am. So if you're going to do that sort of thing, then you really just must make it count. And in Africa, if you have to make it count, you just have to do that scale. I mean, and, um, and so if I built a $10 million business in Bolaji and I sort of had nice, two nice cars, it just, I wouldn't call that successful. Mm -hmm. I, would say in, I, I, would say, I would say financially secure, not, not successful. So I think for us to succeed, we have to do this. We have to, we have to build a business that employs 900,000, 1,500 people who are so close to the action that they are they come out completely different leaders. Mm -hmm. And then we have to pick on industries that are when we, to get to a billion dollars, then it means that we have got to take agriculture and, and take that to 140, 150, 200 million farmers. That then becomes transformation. And then we have to take our payments business, and then and, and payments is a big engine for digitizing the continent and transform, you know, businesses across the spectrum—the large ones, small ones, so on and so forth. And, and I think that would be interesting for me. It would be just like I was a kid in primary school; I wanted to be at the top of my class. This would, this is the top of my class mm -hmm. in, in this phase of it. 
you mentioned how growing up and in your journey, you didn't come from a well-off family and, 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 and yet you found the courage and the strength to take a lot of risk as a very young person to be, to be an entrepreneur. How was that for you? Did you at any point feel like, did you ever question yourself at that stage? Yeah. So I find it curious the word you use yet, right? It's like, so the way I've always looked at it is that, um, so I, I consider my background actually very privileged, mm-hmm. right? In, in the sense we're money poor, but was values rich, and, um, and basically forced you to really be resilient from the ground up, mm-hmm. right? Because all around uh, my childhood were all these people who uh, basically said, you know, single parent, no money, you know, that guy's gonna be a drug addict because everybody around me was a drug addict and, and went into uh, different things. Um, so, you're, so you, 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 I came out of the thing uh, right out, out of the bat with a thick skin. Um, you know, basically, I used to go, you know, no food, no school fees, no money. Was kind of usual, right? And uh, my mom would tell us, you know. Don't let the amount of money in your pocket determine who you are, what you think you can and can't do. And so I came out of uh, the but also with uh, with a separation between financial reality and dreams. Like I could talk about a billion dollars while not having any food on the table, right? Like it wasn't a, a confusing concept. And then I came hardworking and very resilient and, and quite frankly had seen the worst of life, right? It's like... So there was nothing I hadn't seen. So my mindset was always the fact that, uh, you know, there was no risk anyway, that uh, you basically just flipped the coin for a better outcome. Like, you know, by trying, the only outcome would be better. Right? So, so in that sense, I felt that, uh, you know, the mo- so as an entrepreneur, when I wake up and come to work, I almost feel like I have an unfair advantage because I'm resilient as hell. You know what I mean? Just resilient. I don't lose patience. I mean, I'm very resilient. I knock the door and knock the door and knock the door. I have no entitlement that will be open. But I know that I just keep knocking, it gets open. So I think uh, from that perspective, it was um, very interesting. And I see the same with uh, my co founder, Bolachi. I mean, we are just really tough cookies. And we needed to be tough, I think, in, in our business. Mm-hmm. And look, it's been a six year journey, 16 year journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were still uh, somewhat, you could say, a, a very early stage business by mindset. You know, if you take a look at where we are now, where we want to go, we're really early stage. So it's a really long journey. Um, so I think um, my upbringing put me at an advantage. You know, I, I relate entirely with what you just said. Um, I, I come from a similar background and, I, and I, whenever I go back home, I, I look at my surrounding, I look at where... You know, the people I grew up with, I played football with on the street and where they are and where I am. And I, I empathize with this idea of resilience and, and parents inculcating the right values. And actually, when I was talking to James, um, he was sharing the same thing, how, yeah. you know, there were these very strong core values. Yeah. Now, is the solution to this problem that some of us just need to get lucky because we have the right parents who give us the right values? Like, that does not sound scalable to me. How do we address that problem? How do we make sure that the other kids that we grow up with and other kids who are growing up in those circles mm. are endowed with 
whatever it is, whether it's resilience or whether it's something else that yeah. is going to be able to help us, uh, help them rather, get out of the, that, that cycle. Yeah. Look, Veda, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, so look, the, if I, I, I reflect a lot and I say, look, what was that thing uh, that um, took me on the path that, it, that, that, that I did, that, that, that I took and, 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 and my neighbor, I sort of turned out differently. It's like, what, what was that thing? And I spent a lot of years agonizing over that. You know what? I, I think there is always divine intervention in some of these things. That's what I think. But how it shapes me, I say, well, you know what? Then surely, if, if, if then I got onto the path I did, because, you know, if I look at that path, I knew, there are always sort of those moments which were binary moments when you know, something could have gone the other way and then of course you take a completely different path. But somehow, uh, the, the, all of this sequence of events took me to where I am. So I'm conscious that, uh, yes, I work hard, I've done my bit, uh, and I work hard, but I'm, I'm where I am as a, also a consequence of a couple of things that are beyond my control. I would say it's God's doing. So what I say is that then, then what is the purpose then for which I am where I am? And that's why I look at my work as really some uh, ministry, mission, or divine work, which is then I can't, it can't possibly be for myself, right? It's like I can't possibly exist uh, to build Serena so I can be wealthy, or so that I can have a private jet, so on and so forth. That can't, I don't, in my construct, that doesn't seem to me like the reason why I sit where I am with the opportunities that I have. Um, and, and, and therefore, and when I look at the sequence of events that um, in my life, including last year's tragic event, I reflect on it and say maybe these are just reminders that we have a contribution to make. And maybe it's my job uh, and my life's purpose to make a difference for those that come before me. And, uh, and, and, then, and to attack these problems of hopelessness and unemployment and so on and take such a significant bite out of it uh, that uh, you know a couple of other millions of kids just have a slightly better life than mine and a slightly better that life than my kids and so on and so forth so, so this is, that's how I think about life that's my take on life so I, I, I was telling Jerry earlier that I always get a sense that if I if I failed in my mission, God would send me to hell because it will last me so can, you know. So I put you in this position with all these opportunities and so what did you do for my people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it would be, and then I say, well, I've got a blue Ferrari, I've got a red Lamborghini and so on and the red socks to match them more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that can't be the end of it. Yeah. So I think it's, um, it's, um, it's what success for me is that if we end up with a thousand people out of Sullivan who come out really completely transformational leaders because they've seen it happen. And then those guys come out with a couple of millions of dollars in their pockets and can go and basically fund similar causes and do or invest in similar businesses and so on and so forth. And then that the customers that we power and the sectors that we power really transform to touch hundreds of millions of lives in really tangible ways then that would be a good uh, yeah, would be a good uh, would be a good good work good job 
you know, listening to you, I'm, I'm getting a sense as to why you are often described as a as a social entrepreneur. Um, and last year, you won the Schwab Foundation Social Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the year before that, you were named among the 100 most influential Africans um, of 2018 by Africa Magazine. And I and I suspect that's because of the major fundraising that you did uh, that particular year of about 47.5 million dollars which, by the way, is quite phenomenal. That is, however, not the kind of money that people usually associate with social entrepreneurship. My question is, is Cellulant a social enterprise or are you a social entrepreneur? Or how do you define that? Yeah, very good question. I think uh, we've uh, struggled with that definition. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, I think the simple answer is yes. Right, and the reason why we struggle. Yes, you guys are a social enterprise, so, yeah. and you are a social entrepreneur. Absolutely, I think the reason why we struggle with the definition is just the the, the pattern and our and the molding of social enterprises as they've been known before. Mm-hmm. But I think fundamentally, cellular success is fundamentally a social cause. Right, like the way that we define success is fundamentally social cause. But our approach to the business has always been really business because that drives sustainability. Um, that uh, if you're a billion dollar business with 40% EBITDA margin and you're impacting 400 million people, you're really resilient. And, and, and you, you, you can exist for 30, 40 years. And, and you've got a growth engine because it's the same thing. The more you grow, the more lives you touch. It's just, uh, that's just the dynamic nature of it. So, so I would think about it that way. So our reason for being is fundamentally uh, is social, mm-hmm. at the heart of our business. And you're right about the, the kind of traditional definition <clears throat> of social entrepreneurship. And social entrepreneurs are very often criticized for being too focused on social impact mm-hmm. and not enough on actually building a sustainable business. Right? Yeah. They often rely on fellowships yeah. and grants to sustain themselves. The question is, what should come first? Is it the entrepreneurship and the business that should come first and then the impact? Do they go hand in hand? How do you yeah. think about it? Yeah, I think, I, 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 I think the blend is, is the jury still out on what, what uh, blend, mm-hmm. what the right blend is or the sequence. But I think that, uh, so let, maybe you can understand it by saying, look, what's wrong with uh, the traditional notion of social entrepreneurship? Is that because you have, uh, you have, uh, so first, if you look at the talent pool that uh, social entrepreneurship uh, or social enterprises have generally attracted, has always traditionally, at least in this country, come from the NGO center, mm-hmm. right? So that's not that's not entrepreneurial that's not entrepreneurial talent, uh, and it's not execution. It's not first class execution talent. Let's no disrespect to anyone, but that's just traditionally hasn't been the case. Um, so. So as a result, and then, then you have two patient capital. You have a capital that doesn't, that is very explicit, doesn't want a return of capital. So that doesn't just necessarily tune the business very well um, as a business. Uh, now, if you look at the other side, uh, if you have, uh, again, too much commercial capital, it doesn't have the right level of patience uh, for scalable problem solving, right? So the right answer is kind of in the middle. You, you want... At uh, the heart of uh, social capital in the middle, 
you want the edge and execution discipline of uh, commercial capital. And then you need a little bit of the patience of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, impact capital. Not too much patience, just enough patience, because it's, sometimes it's also paid. Too, too much patience can be a problem. So it's a blend in between. So if I think about cellulose capital mix today, you could generally say that our, our capital is somewhat 50-50, right? It wasn't by design. It kind of, that's just how life came to be. And yes, there are moments when there is a sort of um, tension, a little bit of tension between the two types of capital. But I think that um, we've uh, been fortunate enough and the timing, you know, we're 16 mm. years in and so on and so forth, uh, to have uh, intuitively made the right decision in terms of mix and time. Uh, and then there's the other model, right, where you become a successful entrepreneur first, you yeah. get all your money, yeah. and that, like Bill Gates today, is yeah. completely focused on his foundation. <coughs> yes. um, Bezos announced last week that he's going to put $10 billion to, to um, climate change. Yeah. But is there a danger there? Like, you know, when you focus entirely on the business, are you, could you possibly be already causing further damage to the planet and to people? And then later, then on, later on, when yeah. you got the money, you're like, oh, well. Yeah. I'm always curious about that. Mm. This is my thinking. So first and foremost, uh, yeah, look, I'd like to make a difference while I'm alive, right? And that's pretty much the only thing I have no control of, right? So... So the notion of sort of let me make money and then figure out how to give it out uh, sounds to me, uh, I don't know whether I'm going to be alive tomorrow. Uh, but I think today, uh, making impact today with the kind of execution machine that a commercial business has, I think it's just that much more impactful. Right? I mean, um, uh, I mean, cellular is a really commercially driven machine. Right? So like our, our day-to-day operating pressure and cadence is very commercial, uh, wrapped in an in a altruistic uh, mission that has, uh, has both. And I think that uh, we've seen that in real time. I mean, we've seen uh, a situation in, in where we executed a project at scale in Nigeria in the agriculture sector, and we uh, grew farmer income by two and a half times uh, in three years. I think that uh, that uh, it's now uh, gotten onto a scalable platform that, uh, that would take that to 17 million farmers if you sustain that over 10 years, that income uh, then grows to $7,000, $10,000, right? I mean, why do we need to wait to make that happen? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then remember that every cycle you have to build the execution machine to get a scale, right? So if I say, look, I'm going to sort of run a billion dollar business, maybe we do my sense is that uh, maybe sometime to 2025, 2026, we do a listing with $20, $30, $30 billion listing, um, and then start to give them money away. Then, then at that time, then you've got to build a, an execution vehicle to give it away meaningfully. I just think that it just makes sense, the mix as it is. In any case, the classic uh, definition of our entrepreneurship is basically fixing society's problem mm-hmm. right? in one form or another. Right? I mean, the Rockefellers and the, mm-hmm. and the men who built America mm-hmm. were not trying to be social. They were just giving lighting, you know, lamps and making sure people had lights at home. Right? So in Africa, mm-hmm. so we just want to make sure people have food on the table. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't actually see that in Africa, that distinction between social and and, uh, and commercial, there's so many sort of foundational problems. There isn't that much of a distinction. If you're going to solve a problem at scale, uh, and you're going to build a business at scale, it's almost always always going to be a social mm-hmm. impact, mm-hmm. a social impact for business. You can, and I'm sure you know many entrepreneurs yourself in Africa and elsewhere who have tried to build, you know, a very commercially successful business mm. from an altruistic uh, um, uh, uh, place. Few have succeeded. Mm. What is it going to take to get you to do that and build a billion-dollar company um, mm. that is altruistic mm. in nature yeah. and is not as ruthless as what? I suppose a distinction between. Entrepreneur and social entrepreneur is yeah. if people want to make that distinction that too often entrepreneurs have been extremely ruthless and it's come at the cost of mm. you know many things the planet people etc. So mm. w- what is it going to take for you to continue being true to that identity that you've given to Cellulant and at the same time build a billion dollar company? Yeah. So frankly speaking, I think you know it's a, you always say that uh, sometimes that is analogy. That you know the 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 arrow has already left the bow, mm. and the arrow is on target. So the the question is just make sure you know nothing pops up that uh, that moves the target or or that uh, it, so something comes the the way of the arrow. <laughs> like I, this would have been an extremely difficult question ten years ago. Now it's now not even a question any longer, right? I think. Um, the stuff we're doing in agriculture, no question about it. It's transformation at its very core. And it is a fantastic business model. For very simple reasons, I mean, there's just a lot of wastage, right, in, in between the sector. Uh, when I look at what um, we're doing with payments, um, you, know, you know, payments will be at the backbone of digitization of the continent, right? And digitization takes financial services to the to the to the rural areas. Uh, digitization will, will allow business models that take uh, energy to the rural areas with prepaid solar. You know, with uh, if you take away uh, payments, you can't you, you can you can you can't uh, deliver uh, prepaid solar and so on and so forth. So payments are sort of going to be a rail upon which some of the large pieces of transformation are going to be built. So if you could say, in a nutshell, somehow by some design, some try and error, some by chance, we have kind of gotten ourselves into a point where we have got this sort of mix of businesses, and we have got this mix of capital, and we have got uh, we have, we have got this sort of 16-year experience um, that somehow has found the blend between those two, and I think that's what's special about our business. And then you have got two entrepreneurs who are really just driven uh, by that. The, that hunger to make that uh, difference, and that you know that um, gets you to work, and gets you to want to grow and want to learn and want to be curious, you know, in a fairly special way. So I think, in that sense, we are really special company. Uh, you know, sometimes I always say we are God's company. It's a, you know, it's a blend of many things that one sometimes can't explain some design, some chance, and so on. Do you feel that the talent required to scale this 
exist and you can access it to do it? <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I think um, our approach to talent um, is that um, that's what we, have, we, we say in Africa for Africa by Africans, right? I mean, they, and so we, you, we have a fundamental bias of, uh, of uh, looking for African talent. Um, but we are, we are generally uh, mission first, right? So where we need to uh, find talent from other parts of the world, uh, we, we we don't shy away from that. So I would say we we are essentially a mix of find the talent, rent it, borrow, uh, lease, whatever it is that you need to do. So, I mean, we had a sort of capability building project that's just ended, and, and, and we recruited McKinsey for eight weeks to do that. I mean, if we look at the amount of work we have sort of been able to pull through, uh, we would not have been able to do that organically. And, and so it's basically this uh, sort of thing. And you know, the folks from McKinsey from everywhere in the world just really matter. And then, and then we've been fortunate that uh, we, are, uh, we have had a set of investors that are really deeply committed to uh, hands-on supporting the business. So we have uh, uh, TPG, uh, TPG through the Rice Fund, a uh, large investor. We have Endeavor, which is a large network of uh, or high-impact entrepreneurs, they call it high-impact mm. rather than a sort of social entrepreneurs. And there's a Schwab network and so on and so forth. And uh, we are very um, intentional about asking for help from this network when we need it. Um, and we are not shy at all. And, and I always, uh, we've always said to our board members that, okay, Cellulant's board is a working board. You're going to work very hard for us. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and we are not shy of sort of saying, hey, you know, mm. we've got a problem here, we can't figure it out. And we, and yeah, and I think that collaborative approach um, allows us to be able to, to put the, the know-how where it's needed. We're almost at the end of our conversation. I'm going to ask you a set of um, quick-fire questions. Um, I mentioned Tony Wagner's three P's earlier, passion, purpose, and play. Would you say having... I was going to say social impact, let's just say high impact. Um, is that your passion or your purpose? Purpose. Does, is purpose informed by passion or is it the other way around? I think purpose informs passion. So if that's your purpose, what does the future hold for Cellular? Yes, everyone's got a, a, a certainly a bright future and highly impactful future, no question about it. I think uh, and there's no doubt that we will be one of the most impactful businesses on the continent for a very, very long time to come. What does the future hold for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, fairly, uh, I, I, I think I'm going to be a very strong contributor to the continent's transformation, no question about it. What is the single most important skill you feel like you have to exercise every single day as an entrepreneur? Learning. Hunger to learn. What is the single most important value you think an entrepreneur should espouse? A very high level of integrity. Um, is Ken an entrepreneur or a social entrepreneur? I'm an entrepreneur with a social cause. Is Ken an entrepreneur or a leader? <laughs> Jerry, what wow. do you think I am? 
I have no clue. What's the difference between those yes. two? Yes. <laughs> good question. That was going to be my next question. What is the difference between a leader and an entrepreneur? Well, well, I think to be a good entrepreneur and to be a long-term entrepreneur, uh, you have to evolve into a leader. So I think that um, you have different uh, levels of entrepreneurship uh, force you to evolve from sort of like hustler, you know, it's like year one, year two was sort of just sheer mm-hmm. hustling, uh, brute force and so, sort of stuff. But you're, 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 over time, you just have to evolve into something else. So I think, I think every single day I'm searching to be a better leader. That, that's what shapes my journey today. One time when you were the most tested as a leader? Well, there's, yeah, you go through several moments of those. I think last year was, uh, was a difficult one. Um, and because we got confronted by a problem you just never, ever imagined you would have to deal with. I mean, we had a, we had a life uh, situation. We were at a leadership offside and we were following it on WhatsApp. And then by the end of uh, that horrible day, then you had parents to call, you had relatives to call, you had uh, staff to come down. It, it basically was just very, it was completely, uh, yeah, I think I felt I was at days, you know, like you have all this black and white movie mm-hmm. for, for uh, up until September, actually. Mm-hmm. And one time you were the most tested as an entrepreneur. That is always difficult, right? I mean, we have tough moments, but tested. I think, I think the fundraising, the last fundraising round, that was really tested. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it tested a lot, right? I mean, uh, there were 60 investors. Um, we only, in the end, ended up with one term sheet. So, so you could say this. So those were 59 no's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then, you know, then it tests you. You wonder whether you have a business, right? So yeah. I think that was really trying. And then the level of dilution that uh, Balaji and I suffered, you know, do, yeah, you know, your concept should we do, should we not do? I think that was a really trying period. And Ken's life mission is? Yeah, to build Seven to the most uh, transformational company. I think that's my life's mission. And uh, make sure that... Uh, Nothing important fundamentally breaks as I do that. I want to have a highly successful family. As I do that, I want to be a good friend to my friends. I want to be a good son to my mom, and so on. So, yeah, so life is always a constant balance between all of these things. So, sometimes um, you wake up and you think that to succeed, a couple of other things will need to break. I mean, it's interesting. My wife calls her cellulant. Uh, she said that she, she made peace when she came to realize that cellulant is actually a core wife. Right? <laughs> it's not a job I have. She, and now she wants to sort of build this uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneur spouse support group. But actually, once you accept that actually it's a core wife or a core husband, then you'll be fine. I was about to ask you. I was about to ask you if uh, Cellulant is is your family, but I guess I know the answer now. Cellulant is your co-wife. So then, last question is: um, Ken will say mission accomplished when? Yeah, when we list a couple of years on the line uh, for twenty thirty billion dollars uh, with a billion dollar revenue. Right. And say, yeah, that's what I said to do, and now the job's done. 
and Jerry and some of the other guys and can take over and, and, and then they can take the business to Brazil or whatever it is they want to do. All the best on your mission, Ken. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thanks, Veda. Thank you. Thanks for coming across. Join us next time in The Room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.